0: I did agree that I was going to go first, but I was waiting for Jack to tell me that I could start.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But you were supposed to go first!
0: (laughs) I think we did this once before, didn't we? Was it at the community church in Fairfax? Probably, years ago. Yeah. So, um, a repeat performance after about 18 or 20 years. Um, so uh, I suggested to Jack, we talked about wisdom, and Jack suggested I go first, which means, you know, kind of like being Jack's straight man. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> in uh, the Zen tradition, certainly the person who goes second gets to, you know, make fun of the person who goes first <laughs> 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 and point out the limitations in what they said, you know. <laughs> So thank you. I'm <laughs> in, advance. Yeah, in advance. I'm here for the teaching. I have been um really appreciating being here because, you know, since I was sitting up here, this a whole stream of people came up to Jack one after another and Jack gave them different advice but then he told everybody, You're doing great. It's really <laughs> You'll get through this. It's it's really gonna work out. And uh uh, so that was wonderful cuz i got to hear that over and over again sort of out of the side of my ear you know like and that must apply to me too you know, it's it's going to work out
2: <laughs> <clears throat>
0: i think there's um uh one uh basic uh delusion uh that you know i felt floating around the room while we were sitting so I want to mention it to you. And, you know, it's wisdom to see delusion. So this is the little piece. Um, and what I felt floating around is, if I, if I do it right, it's gonna work. And if I, if, I didn't, if I didn't get it right, it's not, it's not working because I don't have enough skills, and I don't have enough savvy, and I don't have enough wisdom and compassion, and if I did, it would all work so much better. Then it's working now. I felt something like that. Maybe it's just me, huh? <laughs> um, and this is very, um, you know, this is very fundamental that, you know, we have this idea. And it's so painful that, um, you know, I wish I was way more skillful it was hugely depressing for me, you know, that the U.S., we, our country, went to war in Iraq. I felt, uh, you know, what a failure. I've been practicing Buddhism and meditation all these years. It didn't work. <laughs> um, and in, you know, just very simple ways, um, you know, emotions and thoughts and uh, arise. Um, beyond my, and the other word for this is control. We all wish we had much greater control over the way our life worked, the way our mind and body behaved, the way others' minds and bodies behaved in relationship to us. And somehow we tend to um, make it very personal. I didn't do something well enough. I didn't do something skillfully enough. If I had done it more skillfully or more compassionately or more wisely, this wouldn't be happening. So, um, uh, this is, uh, it's wise to see that this is a delusion. In more traditional terms, uh, you know, wisdom is insight into these three marks of Our life, conditioned life. Uh, The three marks impermanence, no self, and suffering. And that things keep changing, and we don't, we have way less control than we wish we had over what happens next, what's happening now. Uh, And so there's a kind of possibility of a divergence here. One could go on endeavoring to develop enough skill uh, to handle everything that comes up capably, competently, wisely, compassionately. (laughs) Almost like a kind of wave of your wand. It's a kind of magical thinking. And, um, or one could, um, rather than uh, continuing in the same direction, one could see that this was not going to be possible, and just practice meeting each thing that comes up. And uh, sometimes doing well with it, sometimes doing poorly, having successes and failures, and meeting each thing. Uh, Meeting people that appear, and daily events. Meeting the dishes and the floors, the bathroom. The three, uh, seeing the three marks is associated with the... uh, the what's known as the upside-down or inverted, sometimes called the perverted views, uh, that uh, the way it's traditionally mentioned in Buddhism is uh, that we endeavor to establish permanence when permanence can't be established. We endeavor to establish a self where there's no self to be established. A self that, of course, you know, things reflect well on the self that you're endeavoring, we're endeavoring to establish. Uh, And that we endeavor to uh, establish a state of ease, or, um, you know, satisfaction in the midst of all this change and inevitability of unsatisfaction, that the pleasant things come to an end, and there's nothing that can be depended upon. Uh, So this is also then associated... Some people have said, um, you know, a basic problem we have uh, is that we have addictive personalities. We'd like to have something that we can count on. What is it? And in some instances it's, um, you know, a substance. I tend to, uh, I seem to have developed a reliance um, on caffeine, (laughs) a secondary reliance on, oh, just a glass of wine in the evening. (laughs) (laughs) My acupuncturist now has made up a list for me to reduce or avoid. Um, And then, uh, you know, perhaps it's a person, or we'd like to be able to rely on a state of mind. We'd like to be able to rely on wisdom or kindness. Uh, And finally, there's, um, you know, in the uh, Perfection of Wisdom Sutra, it says, or in the Heart Sutra, which is the heart of the Perfection of Wisdom Sutra, it says a bodhisattva or a Buddha relies on the perfection of wisdom. And uh, so I wanted to say a little bit about the perfection of wisdom tonight. Uh, the perfection of wisdom, you know, is one of the six perfections. The first, which most of you are quite familiar with, the perfection of giving, which is known as dana paramita. Paramita is the word for that which carries you across to the other shore. So um, it's also sometimes translated gone beyond. Uh, so what takes you beyond? Um, so the translation is sometimes uh, perfection. And uh, what's, what makes a generosity a perfection is when there's not keeping track. I gave that to you. (laughs) Now I want credit. (laughs) I want it to be in my account. I want to be able to draw on that account. (laughs) I want to have something in my bank. Or, you know, the other perfection's conduct or... Precepts, practice of precepts, patience, uh, vigor, concentration, and wisdom. Uh, What makes it a perfection is there's not a keeping track of what I did and what credit I should have for it and what it should mean and what I should get for that. And could I explain that to you? (laughs) (laughs) What you owe? So, all of these things are practices with no strings attached. This is what makes it a perfection. So, uh, it's said in the Perfection of Wisdom Sutra that um, there's, they distinguish between two kinds of bodhisattvas. I always think this is kind of the people who wrote the sutra. Rather than saying foolish common people and bodhisattvas, They say bodhisattvas who are unskilled and bodhisattvas who are skilled. (laughs) So what unskilled bodhisattvas do is to keep track. This is what happened. I saw this, I smelled that, I thought this, I felt that, and this is what it means. I'm this kind of a person. I'm not a nice person. I guess I'm not as kind as I thought. I guess I'm an angry person. Oh, this is so painful. And I guess I'm not that good a student of Buddhism. And um, I could have done better. I should have done better. So in other words, there's keeping track of one's experience, and then there's keeping track of what's it to, what is it a sign of? What does it mean? Especially, what does it mean about me? <laughs> So unskilled bodhisattvas keep track of this, and then they keep track of whether or not they're keeping track. (laughs) I know I'm not supposed to be keeping track of this, but... (laughs) I'm keeping track. And so then it's said that skilled bodhisattvas don't keep track. They don't live or course in the skandhas, in all the things that are happening the particulars of what's happening, and what does that mean about me? How am I doing? Am I doing better? Or am I doing worse? Am I getting anywhere? Have I matured? Have I grown up? So there's a letting go of, what does all this mean? I think I mentioned that to you before, you know, uh, when I was... Uh, Every so often I do improv, improvisation classes with Nina Weiss. So one time, um, so we do little individual performance pieces and we did a movement piece one time. So after a couple minutes, Nina says, that's enough. And would you like some feedback? <laughs> and she's kind of like Jack, you know, she says, that was great. <laughs> that was good. You did well.
2: <laughs>
0: she tells you that before she tells you what, <laughs> 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 what you might have done. And the main thing, that what she would say is, what aren't you doing? So she would say what you are doing. You, all your movements were very smooth and graceful. You made no jerky movements. Or all your movements were slow and graceful. You, you didn't have any quick movements. Why are you limiting yourself to one kind of movement?" And about me, apparently I had slow movements and fast movements and quick movements and a variety of movements. So she said about my movements, she said, that was good. You had a whole wide range of movements, but it looked like everything you did had some meaning. (laughs) Did you want to limit yourself to just doing things that have meaning? (laughs) So she caught me. I'm a very serious person, you know, and I would like my life to be meaningful. So if you want your life to be meaningful, you've got to keep track and find the things that are meaningful and, you know, point them out to yourself. And then you've got to also find Oh, then you find all the things that you think, this isn't meaningful, this is idiotic, this is stupid. You know, having to sit here and pay all these bills, make all these phone calls, this is ridiculous. If it wasn't for the IRS, I could be out having a walk or gardening.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> so one can keep track of all this about how it's going and, you know, why am I stuck and I'm in this place and is it true? So, the skilled bodhisattva doesn't keep track. This is kind of a big relief. Could be a big relief. Uh, Doesn't keep track, doesn't course in, doesn't, you know, rest or rely on anything in particular. Isn't aiming for any particular standing. One other thing I want to say about wisdom, um, because I am anxious to hear, you know, the capping phrases.
1: <laughs> the rebuttal, right? <laughs> <laughs>
0: when we say that, when I uh, speak about this, um, when it says the bodhisattva relies on the perfection of wisdom. You should also know that there's no such thing. or to put it another way, that wisdom in Buddhism would be something that arises on each moment or doesn't, and it's not something you could have and keep. So there's um, if, for instance, you you know what to do uh, and you're following a recipe, Um, that doesn't mean it's going to work. Um, And there's something to be said for um, uh, see with your eyes, smell with your nose, taste with your tongue, feel your feelings, think your thoughts, see what's going on. And then, um, out of your own being. You know, let your own being uh, respond. You let things come home to your heart, let yourself respond. So the perfection of wisdom, in a certain sense, is learning how to trust that your own innate, or in Zen, you know, we would say original face or true nature, is inherently worthy, wise, and compassionate And so you don't have to be busy all the time fixing it, trying to improve it, trying to change it, trying to make sure it doesn't misbehave. (laughs) And wouldn't that be a relief? So in a way, um, another way to think about wisdom would be, you know, a deep trust or belief or confidence in yourself in your ability to meet all the circumstances of life, all the vicissitudes, all the changes, all the imperfections, you know, as well as you can, and let go of what that looks like. Onwards, (laughs)
1: that was really good. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
3: And
1: and, uh, I tried to keep it short. (laughs) Oh, so sweet because, um, we do come to spiritual life with the same patterns that we live the rest of our life with. And so we think if, you, if you're if you ambitious in the rest of your life or self-judgmental or in conflict with others or whatever those patterns are, and then you start to meditate, um, then you get ambitious in your meditation or you judge yourselves or you have some other, the same repetition. And what your, you know, your invitation is so wonderful is just to... Let that go, and when I think of wisdom, since you you know, raised the theme, um, and I think of really the wisest people that I've met. There's a kind of graciousness to the people that I consider the wisest. It's not just that, oh, they understand or know something, but there's a kind of ease and um, trust, and graciousness with others, and uh, presence, if you will. Um, you can think about it. Think about who you have met, who you consider to be wise, and how nice it is to be around somebody, where there's the sense of them being themselves, and allowing you to be yourself, rather than being in conflict with the world a lot. Now, if I recall correctly, Suzuki Roshi, your, your teacher, didn't he say that his Zen master's life is one continuous mistake, or was that, was that Dogen who said that? Um, which is a wonderful thing to to hear, actually, because that means, well, if the Zen master's making one mistake after another, I guess we're all just in it together. Um, when I went to do this workshop in New York um, and uh, got there and explained to them all that I almost hadn't come, um, and then Trudy, who I taught with, said, yeah, she was stuck at the airport for hours waiting for standby flights and then another standby flight or whatever. I didn't get to New York till the middle of the night and she didn't get to Philadelphia and then up there. It was very difficult for her. And somebody raised their hand and said, Trudy, were you angry at him for kind of messing up? Because I'd written it on my schedule as next week. I thought it was going to be next week. That's when when we'd originally talked about the workshop but a year ago. That was the date we talked about. It. And then it got changed and I never amended my schedule. So they said, Trudy, you know, you went through all this trouble in the airports and crowds and standby and waiting stuff. Were you angry at Jack? She said, No, I was just so relieved that it wasn't my fault.
3: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> and, it, you know, there was a certain kind of moment of insight in that because there's, there's two kinds of suffering, really. Um, there's the trouble or the pain that we have which everybody has, right? Anybody not have pain? You can have your eight dollars back, right? (laughs) Um,
2: And then there's all the suffering
1: that we add on to it, which is what Ed has been talking about, that you have praise and blame, you have gain and loss, you, we. We have pleasure and pain, we have fame and disrepute. We have these things, everybody has. And then, you know, you get the the blame, pain, loss part, and say, either I'm doing it wrong somehow, something's wrong with me, you know, or or you judge yourself, or you judge somebody else, and you make so much m- more suffering rather than being wise, which is to say, this is the way things are. Sometimes you make mistakes, and then on other days you make other mistakes, and <laughs> it's all right. Um, and I believe Suzuki Roshi said, you can tell me if I have this correct. At one point, something like, you're perfect just the way you are, and there's still room for improvement. Was that right? Or, <laughs> or you're perfect just the way you are, and I love you too much to let you stay that way. <laughs> but there's, there's this kind of paradox in that it's not about self-improvement, but as one relaxes actually, there comes a kind of compassion and graciousness and ease, and, and maybe the perfection of wisdom um, is really the same as the perfection of love. That is, that the idea isn't to make the world perfect, but to love the world more beautifully or more perfectly. You're nodding, so I guess we're... Okay. All okay. right? Huh? Sounds good. you it? With, with me? <laughs> um,
2: You're doing really well. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: I, there's this lovely s- book of little tiny stories of Suzuki Roshi that I, I know you're a part of in and, and here. Um, and One of my favorite stories is in here. While helping Suzuki Roshi prepare for a marriage ceremony, I said, Roshi, I don't understand. You recite the same thing at every single wedding. You say to the man, you've married the perfect wife, and then you say to the wife, "Um, you've married the perfect husband. You say that no matter who it is. And he said mischievously, oh, you don't understand? It is this kind of paradox because There is something in us, I think, that really wants to live in a beautiful way. There's a kind of immediate and intuitive connection to our own Buddha nature. And all it takes is a moment of slowing down or listening to the heart. Even after you've had a busy day or you've gotten in some struggle at work or with your family or some great difficulty, or I have. And then I sit down, don't even have to sit long in meditation. Maybe just sit down quietly and take a cup of tea. And get the little bit of reruns, and I think you know, um, I'd I'd like that to go better. I'd like to be more loving. I'd like to be. I'd like this to work out in some way or other. And there's something actually beautiful in that. It's not about judging myself or trying to make myself better. It's just sensing how, sensing that it's possible to be more present for oneself in a respectful way, for another person in a respectful way. Um, for the difficulties that happen, which we can't change very often, Um, for the beautiful things that are happening at exactly the same time. Um, And wisdom, in some way, allows this kind of paradox of being present for what is, including our own failings, um, and at the same time, somehow allows the graciousness of the heart, the love, the compassion for all this humanity and to be present too. There are two different schools of Zen that are particularly um, alive in the world today. I guess there were five or more of them in China at some time, but there's mostly primarily Rinzai and Soto Zen. Is that correct? (laughs)
2: Am
1: <laughs> I right? Sure. Yeah, thank you.
2: <laughs>
1: and if I understand right, I'll talk about Zen since he's sitting here, he can help. <laughs> All right. In Soto Zen, you just sit. And the only pra- main practice is um, to sit and realize that you are already the Buddha, that you're already perfect. And then the only other instruction or the main one is to let go of anything that comes up that, you know, thinks that you're not. I mean, in some way it's a little bit like um, acting as if you're the Buddha for a while until after a while you can't tell whether you are or not, sort of a certain way pretending you are. But it's more than pretending. It's really recognizing that you are complete. And the only problem is the difficulties that come up in your mind that says that you're not. Is that is that in the ballpark? So does that. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: I'll take your word for it. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah. the The ballpark. I don't know.
1: Sure. I mean, that's a little small a ballpark. I mean, well, okay. Open it up. How big can it be? Well, somewhere on the mountain. Uh You yeah, know,
0: Mount Tam. Somewhere. Somewhere. Yeah. Bigger. Yeah.
1: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So actually, when you sit in Zen, you are the entire universe, and you don't have to do anything at all. Is that bigger? There you go. (laughs) Thank (laughs) you. Okay. But in Rinzai Zen, they say that you don't remember that you're the whole universe, so you're given a koan-like. Who were you before your parents were born or what is the sound of one hand clapping or something which makes no sense to you at all and you keep trying to do and over and over and over again until you're trying to figure it out mine gets worn out um, and everything stops and then you remember <clears throat> that not only is there mount tam but you're in the center of the universe and the whole universe is okay and you don't really have to make so much fuss about it something like that right <laughs> sounds great when, when, when I worked with Sasaki Roshi, who was an old <coughs> Zen Master, I would went on Sashin and he gave me a koan to answer. And you go in four times a day to see him. You bow and he sits there very dignified and he says, koan, and then you say whatever your koan is like, what is the sound of one hand clapping? And then he looks you in the eye and he says, so what is the sound of one hand clapping? He asks it to you. And at that moment, then you can do anything you like to answer it. You can speak or move or nod or anything that you think will answer the koan. And so, when I first was sitting Zen, you know, he gave me this koan, and I would go in. He'd give me my koan back, and I would try to answer it. And he would look at me, and he'd say, "Oh." No good, and ring the bell. You know. <laughs> that was okay. But then after a couple of days, he would look at me and he'd say, Oh, 2% ring the bell. <laughs> you meditation teacher? No good, ring the bell. <laughs> so I tried harder. I was really going to answer this call, you know. And I went in and I, you know, um, I demonstrated the sound of one hand clapping somehow or other with my whole body. And he looked at me. He said, Oh, too much ego rang the bell. <laughs> it just got worse. worse.
2: <laughs>
1: then I got really angry at him. Because <laughs> I, I just was just getting so frustrated. I had a breakthrough actually. We decided it must have been his fault. <laughs> That's
2: right. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Oh, so I have this cartoon from Calvin and Hobbes here. And Hobbes, the tiger, says to Calvin, who's out building a snowman, aren't you supposed to be doing homework now? And Calvin says, I quit doing homework. Homework is bad for my (laughs) self-esteem. It is, says Hobbes. Sure, says Calvin. It sends the message that I don't know enough. All that emphasis on right answers makes me feel bad when I get them wrong. So instead of trying to learn, I'm just concentrating on liking myself the way I am. And then Hobbes says, Your self-esteem is enhanced by remaining an ignoramus. (laughs) And Hobbes protests, Let's just call it informationally impaired, please. (laughs) So here's that paradox again. You're perfect just the way you are. And there's room for (laughs) improvement. But somehow wisdom seems to be big enough, maybe bigger than Mount Tam, as you suggest, to hold both of these truths, to hold our imperfections and our beauty at the same time. And if you can't see the beauty in yourself or another person, you're sunk, and everything becomes tragic in some way or other. But on the other hand, if you can't also see the possibility of what can grow and blossom in you in another, not because it's wrong, but because it's possible. If you don't see that other side, also then you're stuck somehow.
2: (laughs) So, ready to enlighten us?
0: What was the delusion um that uh you know any one of us could, in a kind of literal sense, become perfect, you know that we could handle things perfectly if we just knew enough basic delusion and not and, make and any mistake and not make any mistakes, so uh we've been mentioning the sort of the wisdom that. You know, to see that we are going to be making mistakes, and it doesn't mean like we do them on purpose, or you know we still give our heart to things, and things don't work out as, as well as we'd like. so it's a way of saying also that um, even good-hearted even a good-hearted person can make mistakes, you know, even good intention and uh, good-heartedness, we still make mistakes things still don't work the way
1: we dreamed up or thought they would. And, and that it's not so easy. I remember um, being with my teacher, Ajahn Chah, um, who used to talk a lot, as as you have been, Ed, about how things are out of our control, how at some point in everyone's life there will be loss, there will be sickness or aging, there'll be death. It's just part of the natural cycle. It's not you're doing something wrong. Part of being human is to be born and grow and change and age and die. That's the cycle. And so he would talk about that and talk about learning to live with the with the truth, the way things are. Mm-hmm. And um, I'd come back to this country and then I returned to study with him again, and he got very sick. He had... Uh, um, a shunt to drain from the water on the brain. Um, he had uh, a stroke, diabetes, um, heart condition, a whole lot of things. In fact, a couple of months after this particular conversation, he went into a coma where he was for a long time. But anyway, I went to see him, and he was still teaching, although he'd been quite sick and in now the hospital. Um, and I bowed and paid my respects and listened to him for a while and he said at one point he said so so what do you you know what do you think and i said well you're always you know over the years you're always teaching this is part of life that there's times when you're healthy and times when you get sick or there's times when it's easy and times when it's difficult times when you're young and then you get older and so this is what's happening right and he looked at me and he said don't say that so glibly
2: could you
4: say something, maybe, each of you, about the process of
1: seeing through the illusion of self and the connection with worship? We can repeat the question, maybe. Or do you want to say it into the mic, since okay. it's there? That would be good.
4: Um, could uh, um, both of you say something about the process of seeing through the illusion of self and its connection to wisdom <laughs>
2: <laughs> 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 um
0: you know provisionally speaking there's there's a self so as long as um as long as you can understand is you know so part of wisdom is to see that how how provisional that self is um and that it's not a fixed self it's not a lasting self uh and it's not a self that you can actually find if you really look for it so um uh So, you know, in a simple way, um, as soon as you say, I, um, then, you know, if you add Suzuki, as you said, if you add tentatively speaking, (laughs) (laughs) then you have something about seeing through the, the, you know, the self as being permanent, lasting, substantial, you know, uh, real. Uh, So I remember that sometimes.
1: What makes you ask the question?
4: I suppose because I've had a lifelong uh, struggle. Uh, <laughs> you just said it so tentatively, uh, you know, it's a rather fragile construction, but it seems to, it, it's taken me colossal struggle to occasionally not struggle uh, and, and allow the Allow the thing to collapse, and and it, it's a very um, it, well. It I mean, it's the gateless gate. is such it's such a. It's both dead simple and and the hardest thing in the world. It seems to allow it to be uh, that provisional stuff.
1: Mm. One of the things that I experienced in my meditation early on, because the Buddhist teachings of selflessness are are very um, central to what you receive in the monasteries, uh, is I translated that as somehow having to get rid of a self that I had. Um, And so I was struggling to try to get rid of something so that I could then be selfless, right? Um, And it, it it was tough. The part that made it particularly difficult that I couldn't actually find the self to get rid of. (laughs) I kept looking for it. I knew I had to get rid of something, or it felt that way, if that makes sense to you, kind of like your question. Um, And then... um, It would be good to be selfless, though. I should be more selfless, exactly. I should be really selfless, yeah. (laughs) Um, And then um, I really started to reorient the, the way I practiced with the help of teachers I was with. And, and they said, well, l- let's look at it this way. Um, do you control your body? I said, well, sort of. I can move it around and things like that. They said, yeah. But if you could say, all right, don't get old. Does it listen to you? You know? <laughs> or, or various other things that you could say to it. It has its own life and all the chemistry of it's going along. And you, you get a little limited control of it, but a lot of it has its own cycle. All right, so it's living its own thing. How about do you control your feelings? Huh. (laughs) I mean, I'm lucky if I'm aware of them, much less control them, right? They do what they. And either I get lost in them, or I can, you know, and get identified, or I can get somehow some space. Well, how about your mind? You know, do you control your mind? All you have to do is sit in meditation for five minutes or so, and it becomes really evident, doesn't it? Duh as my teenage daughter would say. Come on, um, uh, the mind has no pride. It will think anything, it will do anything, and you start to see that. So, all right, I began to notice it's not really in my control. So then um, I started to sense, well, well, who am I? You know, If I'm not this body, if this is sort of living its own life, and I'm not these feelings, and I'm not the thoughts, then maybe I'm the person that's um, watching all this. I'm the witness to it all, sort of this inquiry of self. And so you're instructed in meditation then to turn and look and see um, who is it that's listening to these words, that's seeing Ed and Jack and you know the lights and all this thing. Who is it? And you kind of turn back and look to see who's there. And what you start to see, very simply, Is that you can't quite figure it out. There's awareness, you know, you're hearing and seeing and so forth, but there isn't exactly somebody there that's solid. What there is, if you pay attention, is this space of knowing, awareness itself. Um, And as I said last week or the week before, when you look in the mirror you see that your body is aging and getting older, but you don't feel older, right? And then you realize, well, wait a second, that's it's true, actually, because the body exists in time. So it ages and it does its thing. But consciousness is outside of time. The mind doesn't exist in time in that way. And so it notices, consciousness is aware of these things. And then you look in consciousness to say, well, what is my consciousness? And the more you look, the less it becomes certain who you are. And instead... What my teacher said is, all right, now that you haven't found exactly some little self in there, why don't you just relax and become aware? Just relax. Become aware that um, self is provisional, as you said. It's tentative. It's nothing you have to get rid of. It's not a state, particularly, that one needs to find. Um, Probably the simplest instruction for the teaching of selflessness is to relax. And when one is relaxed, they're kind of in natural graciousness. You're not as separate from other people because you're not so uptight and holding on. things tend to flow. Sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> I have a question. Uh, wait, use the mic, please. That'd be great.: As a follow-on to that, how does consciousness or awareness arise? Um, how does it arise in human beings? I mean, where did it come from, or
4: how did how did we, how did, how did we become conscious
2: or become aware
1: of it? That uh, fabulous question, isn't it? Yeah, and nobody's figured that out. <laughs> I I don't know the answer to it. I don't um, know how <laughs> it arises.
0: Yeah, and the um, uh, recently I read Larry Darcy's book on healing beyond the mind. And um, science has started, finally, to study this sort of thing, he says. You know, there's been a lot of... And one of the things that people have... Um, one of the basic premises of his book is that nobody has ever, ever made a connection between a physical brain and consciousness. Like, how how does a physical body-brain being do consciousness? And so uh, he said that some scientists are now... You know, beginning to suggest that there the total number of minds in the universe is one, <laughs> which would make um you know each of us more like a radio receiver transmitter, you know connected to consciousness in our particular <sighs> version of it.
1: Um, usually, we think of our mind being inside our body, that our brain is in there, but actually your body's in your mind, in consciousness. Um, One of the, a a very popular and a kind of important metaphor in Buddhist teachings um, that relates to to this kind of where do things originate question, um, which the Buddha didn't answer. Um, He said um, that it's like somebody who was shot with a poisoned arrow. Most people have heard this kind of parable and somebody might, uh, might pause and say, well, who shot the arrow, and what was their motivation, and where, you know, what clan were they from, and what kind of poison was on it, and where did they come from, and all, how did all this happened?" He said, by the time you get the answer to those questions, you will probably die. Better first to remove the arrow, and then if you want to do some, you know, inquiry later about whose fault it was or something, you could do that. Um, and in, in, a, in a very simple way, um, my teachers would say things, kind of linking these last two questions about self and consciousness. They would say, if you hold on, which is what makes our sense of self, if you hold on, you'll suffer a lot. And if you can let go and don't try to possess things as much, you can still be committed and take care of them, but you don't try to hold on to whether it's your opinion or how you look to other people or your things. um, There'll be less sense of self in that way, and you'll be freer or happier. Um, I know it as a parent. With my daughter as she was growing up, if I had strong ideas about how she should be, and I really tried to hold on and make her be a certain way and do things, Generally speaking, it was a bad move, right? (laughs) Because they don't like it. People don't like to be held on in that way. Um, And actually, if I paid attention, it didn't even feel that good in me. But if instead I could be committed and loving and care for her, but not say she's my daughter, she's her own thing. In fact, it's it's true for everything that we have. Um, The less sense of holding on in that way, which is... called the small self or something, and the more letting go of that, resting in awareness or being or consciousness, even though I can't tell you where it comes from, but it's here, um, the wiser or more gracious or open-hearted or easy life becomes. And this was the main message from the, the teachers I studied with. You can be happy. You can live in a gracious and open-hearted and more compassionate way, even though life can be difficult, um, even though there will be mistakes, even though there will be you know, gain and loss, and even though there will be praise and blame, you still can live with a gracious heart and be free in the midst of it. And that was the main instruction. And it, um, It's such a relief. It's more than a relief. There's also something really beautiful about it. When you meet someone, as I think our teachers were, um, that seems so happy in themselves, um, in this world, with all its joys and sorrows. And you realize, oh, this is possible. And they say, it's possible for you as it is for me. Please, wait for the mic.
3: it seems a little confusing is in the buddhist tradition is self equated with i uh because uh it seems that i understand about uh personally (coughs) of understanding self you have to have a reference point in some sense am i am i personally being confused i meaning the ego according to me in my opinion this is what I understand about that. Can you give a little clarity there on self? Self not meaning uh, the ego, but self as I. It's been my experience. Um, is it <laughs> totally unclear? <laughs> mm. No, your question's
1: really good because it's such a confusing topic to talk about no self when we're here sitting here and. Talking to each other, and you know, you have a different zip code and social security number than I do, right? Um, part of the
0: question, uh, one way, as a meditator or someone studying one's life, looking at looking into things deeply, is just to look at how do I make that discrimination between what is self and what is not self? On what basis do I decide? self and other than self. And then is that basis a true basis or not? Or is it just something that I've concluded as a kind of practical matter so that people can send me letters, my letters to the right zip code? Um, Because, um, uh, you know, like the Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh used to use the example similar to what Jack was saying about bodies being, body being inside of mind, that um, is your hand inside or outside? And when you look at it, well, it looks like it's out there, (laughs) but it must be, you know, inside. Um, And then everything we see is inside our consciousness. So, you know, on one hand, we say, I'm here, and then what I see is there. So this is me, and that's other. But on the other hand, what I'm seeing, everything I'm seeing, is in my consciousness and is my experience. It must be me. So the, the, the fluidity of one's definitions, uh, to have some fluidity around the basis for I and not I, the other day in, is very useful, you know, or in a sense wise. Uh the other day in the paper um I saw a little quote by the president who said that we we are going to persevere uh, against these terrorists. Um and um um and their Something like, and their evil ambition to run the world.
2: (laughs) Uh,
0: um, And, you know, it's just a little lack of, so like, whose, you know, evil ambition to run the world? I mean, it was like, and there's so little um, in that sense, you know, like being able to look at things from, this side and from that side, and to to see where you know what what might be the the truth here, or you know to be so sense of self is something that um, we can look at and um, and recognize from time to time that and it can shift, and that capacity for our sense of self to shift and part of that again is on what basis do you, de- you know, do you decide between self and other? Is it that clear and obvious? So Then you have some freedom when, that, when you realize that
1: there's no fixed basis. I think um, one of the things that starts to happen in all different kinds of spiritual traditions, certainly in the Buddhist tradition, is that as one practices the sense of self, gets more fluid and in a sense it expands so that it's not just me or I or my person or my family or my community or my tribe or my country, but it gets to be more evident that it's simply us, you know, and what you might do for your niece or nephew or someone that is a blood relative in some way, after a while you realize, well actually it's all um, you know, Aunties and uncles and nieces and nephews, and some of them live in you know Brazil, and some of them live in Afghanistan. Um, and some of them might not be in human form, but what we breathe, we interbreathe with the rainforest and the trees, and what we drink comes from the um, that beautiful water that the sun draws out of the ocean just over here and makes our clouds and comes down and cycles through us. And you know, the the fresh water on the earth, which is um, what we live on, it gets recycled over and over through all these different bodies. I mean, all the water that you drink has been through zillions of other bodies before yours. Um, And uh, the statistic of the, the likelihood, if you take a deep breath, of having at least one molecule of Julius Caesar's dying breath, it's ninety-nine percent likely that one molecule will be in there. Friends, Romans, and countrymen, right? You know. Um, and so, what starts to happen, I think, for for us innately, when we when the mind gets quiet and the heart starts to open, is I that heard, you
0: know what I heard, Jeff, what? was you know that's one molecule of Christ's breath. Oh, okay. But you you know, and why has God forsaken me?
1: <laughs> I don't know, Ed. Why? <laughs> so you wanted to talk about Iraq, and I, I'm, 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 I'm reluctant because, um, I, you know, Well, no, th-
0: I want to talk about, you know, um, before we stop, uh, you know, Hiroshima, and you know, it's that
1: time of year, you know, in the. But I I want to say something about Iraq first. (laughs) Um, And I'm reluctant to say this, but it's it's too good to pass up the opportunity. Um, But it has to have a caveat, and that is that even though um, the Buddhist teachings um, of non-harming and um, compassion and um, refraining from killing and stealing and so forth, which are the fundamental practices, in one way, they could sound liberal. Um, but in another way, they're also deeply conservative and in, in, in the best sense. And it feels really important to me that um, dharma teachings not be associated with libertarian or democrat or liberal or republican or, or yes. conservative, that they're really um, seeing the way the world works in the wisest way possible. And um, What is it that causes suffering? Greed, hatred, ignorance? Um, the small sense of self that separates and judges others out of ignorance, out of racism, out of fear of another, and then the wisdom that says, it's us. We're all related. But anyway, with that caveat, then I can tell you this. I was listening to to talk radio um, driving back from the airport, and I guess it was some democratic legislator who was saying that um, Iraq was having difficulty um, getting a new constitution, and he said, "Why don't they just borrow ours? We're not using it these days anyway. <laughs> 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 so forgive me for that. <laughs>
2: okay,
1: now you wanted to talk about Hiroshima.
0: <laughs> well, actually,
2: right
0: now, right now, it's Nagasaki. Today's the anniversary of the of the. Um, of Nagasaki, so we might have, a at some point, a, some, some quiet for that or acknowledgement.
1: Well, we have to end in a couple of minutes anyway, yeah. so... Um,
3: yes? Uh, I want to ask you something about the perfection and the wisdom that uh, we have in each of us. Uh, how we can understand that Uh, with the mental illness. With what? Mental mental illness, yes. uh, How we can understand that. I understand that we have all the answers inside of us, but uh, what happens when there is some type of disorder, if we can say that, about the mental illness? Yeah. Thank
2: Mm
1: you. And I listened to to your question. And, of course, it's been so confusing over centuries. And, you know, you look at different times in Western culture, people with mental illness, sometimes they're despised or they're locked up in terrible ways, treated badly, or, um, you know, considered to be filled with evil spirits in other cultures. Other times they're um, uh, treated compassionately, loved, cared for. and. Even if there's a biological or neurological disease that causes it, which can be so in some cases, there is an understanding of the being behind that who is still worthy of care and love, as as every being is. So I don't have an answer to give you in the moment of what is the cause or why, but I do know this, and maybe it links to the the end that we will make of prayers for not only Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but really for the sufferings that human beings, out of our fears and out of our ignorance and out of our uh, hatred and greed and so forth, have made for one another, that underneath your question, what I hear is you're looking for a humane way to understand it. Um, and I believe that in, in the best of uh, uh, human hearts, In in all of us, really, there's a wish to find a way to live humanely on this earth um, with one another, and whether it's with um, mental illness or whether it's with the kind of conflicts that happen between people. And part of the invitation of meditation and our coming together in this way um, is to quiet the mind, open the heart, develop some sense of respect for our humanity, for its foibles on one side and its beauty on the other. And to see that not only in ourselves, but in another, so that there will be less reason for war or hatred or cruelty or greed. Um, And so that when someone is in difficulty, whether we can help them or not, whether mental illness, that there will be some spirit of, of compassion for everyone. Um, I mean, the only thing I would pray from Hiroshima and Nagasaki is that we remember, that we learn from that, that we learn some lesson, Um, and that we find our way as human beings. Wouldn't it be great to have a world, which we've been hearing about, which is nuclear weapons-free, in which we actually follow that, that has been promised over Uh, some decades, that that's the direction that we're going to go, to ban all nuclear weapons. And that's a vision I would like to carry.
0: So um, perhaps we can end by sitting um, quietly for a short time uh, and allowing our own, each of us, our own wish for peace and harmony in the world to arise in whatever form or shape that takes.
1: And may the courage of your heart and the great heart of compassion that is your true nature come through your life and bring blessings to the world and your practice and our practice collectively help make this earth a place that has more beauty, more love, less fear, less war, less confusion. May that be the fruit of our coming together. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming tonight. Thank you.